almighty and everlasting God. You govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people, and in our time grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, it's been a good week here. We've had some weather's been kind of up and down, and um, some rainy days, some coolish days. And uh, Anyway, we, we've had a good week. It's been uh, nothing terribly exciting here at our house. I don't know about yours, but uh, it's been you know, sort of in the doldrums of winter at some level. Um, looking forward to a couple of things we've got coming up here in the, in the near-ish future, at least. Um, but but right now, just kind of making it through life, uh, still trying to pray and ask God what he wants us to do, where he wants us to be, all that kind of stuff, and still don't have an answer to that, but that's okay. Um, got a lot done this week. Uh, I record podcasts, the daily podcasts. I record those in advance. Typically, I'm, I'm working two or three weeks in advance, although it was time not too terribly long ago before Advent that I was like three months ahead, so... It's probably just as well to be where I am now, but uh, it's interesting because I chose to do the Gospel of Matthew largely because Suzanne, I said, look, why don't you give me a suggestion for what you think I should do? And so she suggested the Gospel of Matthew. So as it happens, I'm tracking kind of closely with where uh, we are in the Gospel readings on Sundays with those Matthew with the Matthew things during the week as well. So anyway, the, the beauty of teaching the through the gospel according to Matthew particularly is, is it really, it more in ways more so than every other gospel, it opens the Old Testament up. And, and, there's, and a lot of the stuff going on in Matthew's gospel is in response to teachings of the day within Judaism in response to sort of controversies of the day within Judaism. And so we're going to be looking today at the Beatitudes, which are, you know, obviously one of the most familiar um, parts of the Sermon on the Mount, even from the sort of from the New Testament, even one of the most familiar passages. And so uh, it's an interesting thing to look at the Sermon on the Mount in preparation for the daily uh, things. I was looking up kind of where where they think the the mountain was where Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so it, it identifies a place up in near the Sea of Galilee. It's only about 200 feet tall, so it's not really high or anything like that. Um, so it, it it mentions that and then goes on to say what's more interesting than that, however, is the, the fact that scholars don't believe Jesus ever gave this sermon, which I just continually find to be a fascinating thing in, in the way that scholars approach the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Bart Ehrman, who is you know, sort of every atheist's favorite theologian, because <laughs> he is an atheist, um, he teaches at North Carolina, and he, in in the genealogy in Matthew, there are three divisions of 13 generations, and he says that he can't take Matthew seriously because you, you can count that there are only 12 in that last division. You know, that that's intellectual hubris at a level that's just shocking to me. I mean, 2,000 years later, what, you're the first person to count that? And you don't think there's an explanation for it. You think Matthew was so inept he was a tax collector for goodness sake you think he was so inept that he couldn't figure out that there were only 12 there and he couldn't just add somebody or somewhere along the way the church would have said hey you know what you counted badly here matthew we need to add a generation here somewhere but they didn't do that so there must be some other reason there must be something going on that bart ehrman doesn't understand there's that's the way i approach things like that so for people to say that that he didn't really preach a sermon on the mount like this that he didn't do anything like this is an interesting 
idea, and I just don't understand. Uh, but I was preparing for a sermon years ago on Matthew's Gospel, and some of the stuff later in the Gospel, towards the end, uh, the last week of his life, where he makes comments about, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. The passage began with two words, Jesus said. The commentary I looked at that began with these words, Jesus never said this. It is so bizarre how they just completely discount Matthew's Gospel, at least the portions of it that are not found directly in Mark and Luke, and it's because they they believe in this source called Q that um, that those Gospels were written from, and then they say that Matthew just added this other sort of anti-Jewish stuff in there. It's it's really fascinating that there there is no Q, by the way. There, it's a presumed document that everything else except for John came from, and so because it conflicts with their theory of Q, then the the idea is that Matthew never, or Jesus never preached the Sermon on the Mount. So anyway, that that's the level of scholarship I'm, you're, you're talking about here. So at any rate, we are here at the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. We are only like three weeks from um, the beginning of Lent, which begins like three weeks from Wednesday, with Ash Wednesday on the 22nd. So we're continuing to look at the revelation of Jesus into the world. And so today what we're going to get is basically how we should think about the world, the way that we should see it. If we could take our sort of rose-colored glasses off, in many of our, in many of our cases, we, it needs to be rose-colored glasses need to be removed in order to see the world through God's eyes, to see it as it truly is. And then once we've adjusted our glasses, once we've adjusted our eyesight to see things the way they really are, that it's going to provoke certain things within us. And then from there, then we're going to be a little bit in despair and say, well, then how do we then live knowing these things? And, and we've got like a couple of options in there. There, there are like three or four options, but, but there are two primary ones, and we're going to talk about those. But what we get first in the Old Testament lesson is Micah 6, 1 to 8. Now, Micah is prophesying sort of at the end of the northern kingdom. So it's before the Assyrians go conquer Samaria and that part of the kingdom. Um, he's writing before that and then after that as well. But bef- So before the fall of Jerusalem, he's writing in that, that interim period when there, was, where there were both first two kingdoms, Samaria and, and Jerusalem. And then the second uh, piece of it, was written to um, to people in Judah, so in Jerusalem, um, and and it was after the fall of uh, Samaria, but before the Babylonian exile. So that's the setting, and so other prophets are, who around at the same time would include like Hosea and Amos and Isaiah for part of that time as well. And so what you've got is a, is a, is the only surviving part of the nation which is centered in Jerusalem. Uh, the people of Judah and Benjamin, primarily the tribes that are there. And then uh, he's writing to them, and it's, it's a prosperous time for them. And so they're, they're um, excoriated in all those three of those prophecies for their cavalier attitude towards Yahweh and the covenant with Yahweh by bringing in worship from other gods and, and neglecting not the worship, the religious observance of Yahweh at the temple, but but neglecting to to live as though they were in covenant with him. 
they're neglecting the 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 law itself and and what the weightier matters of the law are um, because they can bring you know enormous amounts of sacrifices but they're doing it not for the right reasons they're doing it to bribe God to continue their prosperity so they and, and we know that that's true during this period of time for a long period of time because we know that they're sent into exile because Jeremiah tells us uh, for seventy years because the of the Sabbath they have not given the land. And so their, their prosperity, the good times, roll so much that they don't observe that portion of the law at all. And if, you, if you're going to neglect that huge portion of it, then you know that others are going to be neglected as well. So uh, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hear, hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So the prophet comes, and, and he's saying that God is not pleased and he has an indictment that he's going to bring against you. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So, What's God's indictment? He, he says, how have I wearied you? What, how have I made your lives difficult? Was it when I brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery? Was it when I gave you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to lead you? Were these things wearisome? He says, no, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And, th and that's from um, Numbers 22 to 24. And if you don't know the story of Balaam, I, I encourage you to go read it. Balak sees the people of Israel encamped opposite him, and he's concerned about them because it's a it's, they're so numerous. So he sees these, and, and he, he says, you know what, i got to do something. I'm going to call a prophet, Balaam, and I'm going to call, and he's going to come, and, and I'll get him to prophesy against these people, and then I can go after them. So Balaam responds, but God says, be real careful here. Be real careful. Don't curse these people. And so then on the way there, you know, his donkey stops two or three times, and he can't figure out what to do, what's going on, so he's mad at the donkey, and then he sees the angel of the Lord in front of him in the same way that Joshua meets this man who is armed for battle before they enter the land to conquer the land. And he says, no, I'm, I'm on the Lord's side because Joshua wants to know, are you on our side or the other side? And he said, I'm on the Lord's side. You know, I already know what side I'm standing on. You're going to have to make your own decision here. So that's exactly what happens is Balaam is confronted by the angel of the Lord who tells him, be careful, be real careful, don't say anything. I mean, he's got plenty of warning that he needs to be careful, and so he, he, so he is. He only says what God tells him to do, which is he blesses the people of Israel. And because he blesses the people of Israel, they, they're unconquerable for his king, Balak. And so Balak has to shift his plans, but, which is fine because the people aren't intending to go into the land of Moab anyway. So after he won't do this, he says, well, what can I do? And, he, and Balaam says, oh, well, hey, if you just wanted a strategy— then send our women among them and corrupt their morals. And they do, and they start chasing after other gods. They first chase after the women, and then they chase after the other gods. And so Shittim is a place of, it's, it's the last place that they encamp before they enter the land. But at the same time, it's a place of, of, of complete failure by the nation. In the same way as with the golden calf. 
at the beginning of the story, right? So, so they do that at the beginning, and then you do this in Shittim. At the end, you start chasing after other gods after 40 years in the wilderness. So it's what happens in Shittim, and he says, he says, so remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Baor, advised, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So there's this great falling away, and a great judgment comes upon the people. It's where Phinehas steps up and, and slays these rebels who have gone after the Moabites, and he, he ends up killing uh, an Israelite man and a Moabite woman in the act of sex. He runs them through. And so the, then they drive that out, and they have to overcome this thing. And it's just, like I said, it's very similar in so many ways to what happens after they uh, get the law out on Sinai, and Moses goes up to receive the rest of it, and then they, they go after other gods. And here they do it because they're, they're seduced in the same way that Solomon was seduced by his wives. And so there's this great falling away of the people right at the moment prior to the conquest of the land. And then so, so for what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, so they're under judgment at Shittim, and God could have done away with them there after 40 years in the wilderness, and they failed spectacularly in that place. But, but no, he gives them mercy. And then what happens is they cross the Jordan River from Shittim, and they go to Gilgal. This is the first place they encamp on the opposite side of the Jordan. So Shittim to Gilgal represents the last place they camped in the land and the first place they camped in, I mean, first last place they camped in the wilderness and the first place they camped in the land. So God rolled away the reproach there at Gilgal. So that then becomes triumph. But why did they triumph? Not because of their faithfulness, but because God was faithful to his covenant and didn't destroy him in the wilderness when they sinned at Shittim going after the gods of Moab. So what happened from Shittim to Gilgal is God's faithfulness carried them through at a time when they had been wildly unfaithful to the covenant. So he says, remember, you know, that, 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 that they got from Shittim to Gilgal was not because I was wearisome to them. It's because I was faithful to them when they were unfaithful to me. So he says, remember all these things that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. You want to know who I am? I'm the one who brought you out of slavery, and I'm the one who brought you into the land after your own apostasy to the covenant. So then here's the response. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of the body, for the sin of my soul? So, so they're saying, okay, so I, 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 I hear you. How do I atone for that? What do I do to make atonement for that sin? You know, do I, do I bring before him burnt offerings with a, a, a calf a year old? Would have had thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil. Maybe I give up my firstborn in order to do that. So that's the proposal for how to make atonement. Well, we know how to make atonement. <laughs> atonement was made at the cross by Jesus 2,000 years ago. So there's nothing, even if, it's, even if it's offering your firstborn child 
or thousands of rams with thousands of rivers of oil or year-old calves, any of those things. No, 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 those are not acceptable to the Lord. And, and what is what he says in response, he has told you, O man, what's good. So your proposals about bringing calves, thousands of rams, thousands of rivers of oil, or even your firstborn child, no, he's already told you what's good. You don't have to cast about and try to do what appeases God by way of sacrifice. He says, no, what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. Three pretty simple things, right? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And, and one of the things that, that they were accused of in Micah's prophecy was this exploitation exploitation of the poor the rich got richer and the poor got poorer sounds exactly like what you see when you examine global wealth over the last three years that during the pandemic the rich got wildly richer and the poor got wildly poorer and, the, and there's an exploitation there and that's what when he says do justice stop exploiting people love kindness and walk humbly with your god to, to love kindness is, is a way of reaching out to those in need. Jesus is full of kindness. He's full of kindness for lepers, for tax collectors, for the uh, sick, the poor, all those people. Jesus is full of kindness for those people, and he is, he is committed to doing justice. And he speaks sometimes to the leadership as though he were an Old Testament prophet, calling them to repentance just as John called them to repentance. It's it, it, the baptism for the repentance of sins it is a, a substitute in so many ways for the sacrificial system. It's a broken and contrite spirit that says, I confess my sins to Almighty God. There's no sacrifice I can make for my sins that, that I, I'm just relying on the kindness and the faithfulness of God and the mercy of God. And then I walk humbly before him which is an interesting idea to walk humbly before God, but that's the way shepherds led sheep, actually. The sheep went first, the shepherd followed behind. And so it's, it's this beautiful picture of what does it look like to respond to God's, um, not accusations, because there's more to it than accusation, His, the conviction of sin brought by the Holy Spirit in our lives. What is the response to that? It's to confess, certainly, to agree with God. That's what confessio means. I'm agreeing with you about the nature of my sins. And I'm going to agree not just in words, but I'm going to agree with you in action. And that's called repentance. That says that the words that I speak concerning these sins and, and the heinous nature of those sins is going to be matched by my actions in turning away from those and not continuing there. So that's that's the, the call is to to recognize the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the faithfulness of God to you in the past, even when you weren't faithful to him. And then now to hear his word of correction and to take it to heart and to say, what do you want, Lord? And I know what he wants. He wants me to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before him. And that's basically the message of the Beatitudes in so many ways. As I said, Jesus is initially going to tell us what is a proper reaction and understanding of the world around us. So he's seeing the crowds, because what he'd been preaching in the synagogues up in, in the Galilee, particularly around Capernaum, because he had relocated there from Nazareth. And then he began to preach, but then he also began to heal. 
And so when he began to heal, people began to flock to him. They weren't coming to hear him teach. <laughs> people that he, that he taught were people in the synagogues, and then he began to heal, and then people were drawn to the healing work that he was doing, which won him the right to be heard. In the words of Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, you have to win the right to be heard, and Jesus won the right to be heard by the works that he did. And then they wanted to know, where did he get that power? So seeing the crowds who were following him, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And, and at that time, Matthew hasn't told us that he's called all his disciples. The only ones we know about are the four fishermen. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is, this, so these first three are when, you're, when the blinders are taken off, when you recognize that your experience of the world is not the common experience of the world, especially for those of us in the West who live in, a, in great prosperity, it's easy to overlook suffering, right? So, you know, although we were horribly reminded of that just, what, 48 hours ago with this uh, murder, essentially, of, of a young man in Memphis by five policemen. And it's a horrible, horrible thing. And so we can open our eyes to that. And then how do we, how do we deal with that? How do, we, how do we deal with it when our eyes get opened? I mean, when I went to Rwanda the first time, I, I saw the magnitude of the suffering. I read about it. You know, it, it, I read books and everything else prior to going. And then I got there and I saw the magnitude of it and, and was completely overwhelmed by it. And, and realize something about man's inhumanity to man that I, I should absolutely have known because I, I should have known all about what happened in the gulags in the Soviet Union. I did know what happened in uh, Germany in World War II and Ukraine in World War II and Poland in, in World War II. And then I also know what Mao did to his people in China and then what was done in Cambodia in the killing fields of Pol Pot and what was done here with the Trail of Tears and the the inhumanity of slavery, and then the correction in the um, Civil War, which killed many, many men. And you can see the judgment of God on those things, and, 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 but eyes need to be opened to see the, the plight of, of most people in the world is nothing like what our lives are today here in the West, in the United States. And once our eyes are opened and we see this, we see you know, that, that I'm the problem and then I'm going to have to walk humbly before God and tread lightly on this planet and be careful in all that I do that I, that I not bring unnecessary suffering into the world through my sin. And so once we see it and our eyes are open to the misery and the suffering and the pain and the death and everything else that's around us, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who don't have any hope. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They, they've begun to see the world for what it is, and they no longer long for the world. They don't know what to long for, they, they, but, but they don't become nihilists. They don't determine that nothing matters and nothing is important. No, their, their inheritance is the kingdom of heaven because what they've done is they've seen the world for what it is. They don't want to inherit the world. They want something better. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are, in, who are in pain and suffering over the suffering that they see in the world, whether it's real and personal to them or whether it's, it's observed in the people around them or in the suffering all around the globe. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Ultimately, they'll see reversal of all of this. Blessed are the meek, those who walk humbly before their God.
for they shall inherit the earth. So it's not a meekness that, that means that, that you're a, a doormat. No, the, the meek can just be those who are crying in the wilderness for change. But calling for a certain kind of change. And, and it's those who walk humbly before their God. So this doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly before God can be summed up in these things, the poor in spirit, the ones who mourn, and those who are meek. I mean, it says in, in um, Exodus 12 that Moses was the most humble man on earth, but that humble word is actually could be translated meek just as easily. Well, Moses wasn't meek when he stood before the people. He wasn't meek when he stood before Pharaoh. That, that's, a, that's a strength that's not a place for him to be humble. The place for him to be humble is when he comes before the living God and then when he goes back from God to the people and he has to put that veil over his face. And so he knows what true humility is. It's the recognition that, that before holy God I come and, and he deigns to speak to me and to call me into a position of leadership. And so, so that doing justice, loving kindness and walking humbly before God can can be this poor in spirit, mourning and meek. Because we understand we understand the true nature of the world and, and the world doesn't revolve around us. And then then he goes on to say in these next ones how we live in light of that. Once we've got the right attitude towards the world and, and our sights are set on heaven and not the world, then then who should we then be? And and that's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So you've rejected the system of the world and you're hungering and thirsting not for that, but for righteousness. He said they'll be satisfied. They'll get all they want. If that's what you hunger for, you'll have everything you want and more. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. And Jesus says that time and again, right? That, that he says to love your enemies. He's going to say this in, the, in the, um, the part, another part of the sermon here on the mount. He's going to say that loving your enemies, you're, you're enjoined to do that so that you may, may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, that's characteristic of God is mercy. And I did a whole 13-something part series on that leading up to Advent. If you want to go back and listen to it, I don't remember exactly when it starts, but you can go back and listen to those. They're all there. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall see mercy, because they're like their Father who's in heaven. He teaches the same thing in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so we get forgiveness to the extent we're forgiving others. We get mercy to the extent we're giving mercy to others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They're, they're not adulterated in, in their love for God. They're not mixed with love of the world and love of God. No, they, they, they keep him first. And they'll see him because it's what they want more than anything in the world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, which means that God himself is a peacemaker. And that's exactly the work Jesus has come to earth to do, is to make peace between mankind created in the image of God and God himself. To destroy the dividing wall and the enmity that existed between us and the Creator because of our sins. So Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, but he shows us the price that we have to have for peace is that we have to lay down our lives, lay down our claim, not assert ourselves, but be willing to lay ourselves down in order to make peace. And it's an important thing for us to do. If you want to be called a son of God, then you need to be a peacemaker. If you want to be a son of God, he says later on, then, then you've got to love your enemies. 
because God loved his enemies. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in other places when he, when he talks about that we were all enemies of the cross. But now we've been given the Holy Spirit and we're no longer enemies of the cross. And if there was a, if there was a more powerful and potent enemy of the cross than Paul, I don't know who it would have been. That was his whole mission, was to stamp out those who insisted that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for sins and raised from the dead on the third day, now ascended to the Father, sits there in glory, interceding for us, and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. For that, Paul said, no, there'll be no peace for them. And then, so Jesus goes on, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You know, it's not just being persecuted for being a Christian, for, for that. No, for righteousness' sake, because of who you are, and because your righteousness shines forth, and that makes people hate you. For theirs, he says, the ones who are persecuted for righteousness' sake is the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what happened to the prophets, and Jesus is going to say that. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. And, and, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying, is that if you're standing up for the cause of righteousness— and you're being persecuted for that, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a tif- tough place to be. That calls for you to walk humbly before your God rather than fight people. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're standing in the line of the prophets, and then Jesus is going to go and be crucified, and we're going to see how much hatred there is towards true righteousness and a rejection of that righteousness. So in, in the epistle today, Paul is saying, for the word of cro- the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us being saved, it's the power of God. And it is utter folly to say that man on the cross is the one who is, is as the thief said, coming into a kingdom today. And that must have seemed like the most idiotic thing in the world when that man on that cross said that to Jesus, is remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's another man being crucified, and he sees him as coming into a kingdom. And that's why Paul can say the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, worldly wisdom and worldly discernment fail ultimately at the point of the cross you have to have spiritual eyes you have to eyes opened by the holy spirit to be able to see the truth about what goes on there and then you can call it properly good friday because it was the most important day in the world for humanity is that jesus bore our sins made the made it possible for us to be reconciled to a a holy god who is our father and our creator and then three days later with the resurrection that certified that his sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father, and it's a sacrifice not on his behalf. He didn't need to make sacrifice on his own behalf. It's a sacrifice on our behalf. And we know that it was efficacious because God brought him back from the dead and then raised him up to the right hand. And so we know that God has accepted that sacrifice, so why would we try and make any other sacrifice on our own behalf? Because he did it for us. So destroying the wisdom of the wise and discernment of the discerning, he goes on to say, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And yet it's the thing that we sometimes cower before. 
we, we worry about things like, oh, what the Darwinists, you know, they, they're going to argue us to death and this and that and the other thing. And so we worry about these things and we not because he, Paul's been very clear. God's made foolish the wisdom of the world. He said, for since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. It didn't find him in that way. And that's exactly what his argument is in Romans 1. Is, is that that you missed all the signs. You had no wisdom at all because you didn't interpret the signs of creation which bear testimony to their creator. He said, you missed all that. So wisdom didn't get you there. He said, because of that, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What I preach sounds ludicrous, Paul says, that the man on the cross is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father and he was God himself. He said, that seems absolutely ludicrous for me to say that, but God uses the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, which is exactly what happens all through Jesus' ministry. Hey, we like a sign. Well, how about all the signs you've already had? And then they also believe that he was cursed because he hung on a tree. But we know he's blessed because he was resurrected from the dead. He says, he says, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews because of that belief about being cursed and folly to the Gentiles. Sounds ridiculous. It's a ridiculous story if you just try and evaluate it on a, on a human level. He said, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the meekness of God is stronger than men. And he goes on to say, "Consider, hey, look at yourselves. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. You were no big deal. But God, those are my favorite two words, and it's it's that sums up the whole thing, really, the whole sermon today, but God, you were lost, but God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong, chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and they might walk humbly before their God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Amen, amen, and amen, right? I mean, I have no boast. I have no standing of my own. The only standing I've ever had was guilty. And then Jesus pronounced me innocent, righteous, redeemed, a new creation couldn't get there on my own it required him to do it and because he did it I walk humbly before my God or at least I'm supposed to and then I'm supposed to love justice and loving do justice and love kindness in other words I'm I'm intended to be more like him and to take on his character but my eyes have been opened in my own salvation to all the things that I thought were true or lies and all the things that I didn't believe are true. And now I can see the world rightly, and I can live in the world rightly and walk humbly before my God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.